Hello and welcome to the Harrogate Podcast with me, Andrew Gray. My job, folks, as you know, is to interview and to deconstruct the movers and shakers who live and work in this wonderful Harrogate bubble. Today, I'm delighted to have with me Professor Andy Goulson. Andy is the Professor of Environmental Policy at Leeds University. He's also the Chair of Leeds Climate Commission. Internationally and nationally, Andy is the leading light, internationally and nationally, I'll say it again, in what towns and cities can do to counter climate change. Andy clearly has a brain the size of the International Centre here in Harrogate, although he's way too modest to say it. Uh, The podcast has been put back a little bit in time because Andy was speaking at the youth climate strikes in Leeds. Later in the week, he was also speaking at Stormont and he met the Sinn Féin mayor of Belfast. But of course, the most important task in Andy's week is talking to the people who listen to the Harrogate podcast. Andy, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, nice to be here. Sorry for that very lengthy introduction, but people really need to know um, how impressive you are and really need to take note of what you're going to say. Let's get straight into climate change. Surely it's all just a myth. Didn't we all have an ice age that covered Harrogate and Knaresborough and surrounding areas 10,000 years ago? And so what? The climate goes up, it goes down, we'll have volcanoes in Iceland that will chuck out carbon into the sky and all sorts of stuff. The climate goes up, it goes down. Am I not right on that point? I haven't got a lot of time for people to think that, to be honest. I think you have to be willfully ignorant to believe that kind of stuff. The evidence is overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming. It gets even more compelling every year. I, I work in a school with a load of environmental scientists who work on glaciers and you know, um, the ice caps and so on and so on. And, and pretty much every year they come back a bit more depressed with more alarming evidence of how quickly things are unravelling. And, you know, we're one degree above the historical baseline now, the pre-industrial level. One degree means, you know, global surface temperatures on average are, are one degree warmer. Uh, and somewhere about two, two and a half degrees, uh, what the climate scientists predict pretty confidently now is that uh, we're into the realms of dangerous climate change where the permafrost can melt and, you know, it re- would release tons and tons of stored up carbon dioxide and methane. And then climate change becomes self-fueling and, and we're, we're out of control. And people call that runaway climate change. And that's not a myth. That's a reality. And if you deny that, then, you know, I'm sorry for you and I'm sorry for your grandchildren because it's going to impact on them. Thank you. Crystal clear. I, I, I say it's in somewhat in jest because I'm not a climate change denier, but I know that there are many climate change sceptics mm. who would point that out and they'll say, you know, in the past we had dinosaurs here and so on and doesn't the world keep changing? And this is also in somewhat in tongue-in-cheek, but you know, if there is climate change in the likes of Harrogate and Nerza and Australia, it gets a little bit warmer, you know, are there, are there any upsides to climate change? Yeah, so there could be some good news from a minor, moderate level of climate change up to roughly where we are now, which is one degree above the industrial average. You know, in terms of, for example, champagne production in in Sussex or Kent and, you know, some minor things like that relatively in the bigger scheme of things. But but as we move deeper into climate change, then no, um, it, it becomes deeply scary if you think about loss of food systems and water systems and extreme weather events and hurricanes and you know droughts and famines and all of those things it's 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 scary stuff it's it's nothing to be kind of uh, minimized and yeah and for the uk we just don't know what's going to happen you know the gulf stream is weakening i think we 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 think that 
uh, and the Gulf Stream controls our climate, so people assume we might get warmer weather and, and, and more sunshine and so on, but it could equally well be the opposite. If the Gulf Stream weakens, we could be more like northern Canada, for example, or, or central Canada at least, and uh, you know that wouldn't be a benefit from many people's perspective, I don't think. Thank you. I, I hear you. And anecdotally, most people are saying of late, hasn't the weather been weird in Harrogate? You know, um, is that kind of is that what you're hearing as well on the ground? Obviously, you're experiencing weather as well as a Harrogate resident. But you know, are there farmers saying things to you that you didn't previously hear? Yeah, and you hear that all around the world. You hear it from you know fishermen saying their the schedules and the kind of seasonality of their their catch is changing, and you know, right down to people saying you know, when the the cherry blossom comes out or the daffodils come out or the swallows leave, all these kind of things. I think people broadly intuitively can see that the weather patterns are, are different and you hear that all around the world can you attribute that directly to climate change all the time no but can you attribute that to the trends that we think are, are, are entirely consistent with climate change absolutely yeah and andy do you think it's a tough question is it really game over that there's not that much that we can do because we have china producing however many factories the world's population is growing we're devouring more uh, energy than ever before you know the united nations doesn't seem to have that much power to you know push countries to do this that, and the other surely it's game over and we might as well just give up and not focus on climate change or not no no i really don't agree um i work in china a lot and you know china's doing a hell of a lot it's a it's a bit of a misconception that china doesn't care about climate change i mean Ch- china invested more in renewables last year than it did in fossil fuels uh, and it has a massive interest, self-interest in in avoiding dangerous climate change. And it's been one of the global leaders in renewable technologies and solar PV and wind farms, for example. You know, so what China is doing domestically is then opening up possibilities for the rest of us around the world. And when you know, let's pick on renewable energy, for example. In the last decade, in the UK, uh, the share of renewable energy or the amount of ge- energy generated from renewables has gone up by a factor of six, and the price has pretty much fallen by half. So, you know, what we're seeing is a massive expansion of renewables and a a deep and fairly rapid cut in the carbon intensity of electricity. Uh, All of that's forecast to carry on. The prices of electricity of renewables have have tumbled. Uh, They're now way below coal. And pretty much what we've seen in the last 10 years is is the UK's coal-fired power stations being replaced by offshore wind. Offshore wind's gone from 4% in, or sorry, renewables in general from 4% of electricity in 2000 to up to 25, 30% now, and is forecast to double again or even more in the next decade. So, you know, there's there's lots of good news stories. And, and what's exciting about some of that for me is it's, it's, it's partly about the market now, not about government policy. You know, it makes such good sense to invest in renewables. And it's so not good sense to invest in, in other things that the market could drive this. I mean, to give one example, the, the new nuclear power station that's being built in Hinkley has signed up to a long-term contract for £95 per megawatt hour of electricity. And offshore wind came in about 18 months ago at £55. Uh, and since then has fallen into the 40s. So why, I mean, I'm not anti-nuclear per se, but it just doesn't make sense to be investing in, in nuclear or coal at the moment when renewables are so much cheaper and so much cleaner and you know generate so much uh, positive energy. Understood. To Harrogate specifically, we have three or four mega wind turbines not a million miles from Menwith Hill I think just off Pennypot Lane 
locally there is a lot of arguments about whether it's they spoil the environment, whether they put the birds off and, and so on, and whether they all ought to be offshore. I mean, do you have any sympathy with those arguments at all, or is your position one of, yeah, there's three or four wind turbines, there really should be three or four thousand wind turbines on that spot, or similar spot? Uh, no, I don't think that. I, I can really understand why people, you know, they treasure the landscape, and that's really important. And, um, you know, this has to be a democratic thing and people have to have their say and people can, ha- can make a choice. But when it comes to offshore wind, I'm not so pragmatic. I think that we have to do something radical to avoid dangerous climate change. Offshore wind is one of the things that I think we have to be doing. And, yeah, I mean, the, the scale of habitat loss if we don't do these things is on a scary scale compared to the number of bird kills you might get from, you know, a few offshore wind farms. So, yeah, when it comes to onshore, I get it. But when it comes to offshore, I, I really don't get it. I think we just have to do those kind of things. Locally here then in, in Harrogate, what good things do you think the people are doing around here or the council are doing around here that, we you know, is, is positive, if any? I mean, and are we, are we falling behind Leeds or other towns of a, well, I don't know that town, but any other areas that we're falling behind? How's Harrogate doing in, in Andy Goulson's sort of scale of good and bad? Do you know, I'm not so sure about the detail of what's happening here in Harrogate. I, I work in cities around the world, and one of the downsides of that is maybe I don't engage enough in my, my hometown, as it were. But um, I know a lot about what's happening in Leeds, and in, in Leeds... Uh, yesterday, we published a, a, a low-carbon roadmap for Leeds, which shows how Leeds can become carbon neutral by 2050 uh, and can slash its carbon emissions through the 2020s. And, and the science really shows us that we have to do something radical in the next 10 years or so to avoid dangerous climate change. And you know that means rethinking how we how we move around and our transport systems and radically changing the energy performance of our homes. Uh, it means uh, improving uh, industry and waste collection. And, you know, there's a kind of joke that, you know, in order to avoid dangerous climate change, you can choose any low carbon option you want as long as you choose all of them. And, and that's kind of what we're proposing for Leeds. And so Leeds has signed up to what's known as a climate emergency, acknowledging the need to make, you know, deep and rapid cuts in, in carbon emissions. And on Wednesday next week, they have an executive board meeting to sign up to some really ambitious carbon reduction targets. To put that in context, we are at the moment we're 42% down on our carbon emissions since 2005, uh, largely due to decarbonisation of the grid of electricity, and we need to be 70% by 2025, uh, and then 85% by 2030. Uh, so that really means we have to make you know radical changes in the next decade to avoid dangerous climate change. The, the roadmap we've published, which is on our website, which is Leeds Climate Commission, um, anyone can find it there, shows that it's, it's entirely possible to do that through a whole raft of different things. What we then need to do is get people behind that, get buy-in for that, uh, raise the money to invest, and, and that's what we're working on hard. And so I think Leeds can be and is emerging as a real global leader in this kind of thing. I, if I'm honest, I don't see that happening in Harrogate, despite the fact that there are some really proactive actors and groups here. Uh, my sense is that the council's a little bit slow off the blocks, maybe, and um, need some help, perhaps. But that's true for lots of councils, you know, given the, the scale of austerity and the lack of resources. It needs to be a collective effort across the town rather than just relying on the council to deliver it when, you know, that's not really going to work, I don't think. Thank you. So the people of this area, Harrogate, surrounding areas, what can we do to force, push, 
nudge our council, be it, albeit, uh, so whether it's Harrogate Borough Council or whether it's North Yorkshire uh, County Council, to sort of work together with Leeds, is, is it possible or really should we be even more local than that? We're just focusing on our own area. Or just, or should we be together with Leeds, if you catch my drift? So there is a lot that can be done at the local level. And, you know, the council in any area can enable and facilitate and encourage and show leadership, but it can't do everything. It needs businesses and it needs households and, you know, the, the general public to get behind that. And, and there are groups such as Zero Carbon Harrogate, which are proposing this kind of stuff. You know, they're doing really good work with, with limited resources haven't seen the same level of buy-in from the business community, I don't think. And there are real business benefits from doing this often. You know, major savings in energy bills and so on, which are entirely consistent with what we're trying to do here. Is job creation opportunity enhances competitiveness and, and resilience and can be very, very good for business. So businesses shouldn't be afraid of this. There are opportunities here for, for almost all businesses. And for those that are high-carbon businesses that that could lose out. We, we have a big project at the moment working with the TUC and others on just transitions, so in, ensuring that no place and no community and no people and, and no sectors are, are left behind in this transition. I mean, Yorkshire knows about painful transitions in the energy sector all too well. There's a live history of what happened in the 80s and, 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 and so on with coal. You know, the, the climate community need to ensure that people come with us on this and that it's a a positive thing, not a negative thing. And that includes investing in low carbon development in high carbon areas, for example. So, you know, Hull, for example, has got the Green Port, which is, you know, central to the, the offshore wind kind of revolution that's happening off the coast in, in the North Sea, creating thousands of jobs. And, you know, that's good because it's in a high carbon town. And so there's a transition which is happening, which kind of benefits everybody. Yeah, for, for people on the ground in Harrogate, I mean, the obvious kind of thing to say would be about transport and travel and, you know, do you really need an SUV? You know, could you not switch to a hybrid at least or, 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 or change the way that you think about your, your car and your travel? The, the housing stock here is, is old and pretty, but probably pretty energy efficient. There's a lot that people can do to improve the energy performance of their homes in, in very, you know, uh, economic ways, which make their homes and lives much more comfortable. Uh, so it's not about kind of hair shirts and sacrifice. It's... Um, you know, about a better way forward. Imagine we take a typical Harrogate family, let's say they're sort of 2.4 children, mum and dad, say mum works in Leeds, say, and dad works maybe here in Harrogate. They have a semi-detached house wherever, say it was a 1960s construction, more or less. To help counter climate change best, where should their efforts and money resources be put into should it be you know reducing their cars should it be solar panels on their houses if you could rank stuff more or less where, where people should be spending their time and resources so i heard a great example recently there was a harrogate uh, chamber of commerce event on this uh, in january i think it was the sustainability manager for, ha- uh, for betty's and taylor's gave this great example which i've been using again and again uh, which is, if you think of the, the carbon impact of a cup of tea, which obviously tailors have a big interest in, if you think of everything from picking the tea to processing it to you know, distributing it to packaging it to selling it and then getting it home and boiling the kettle, and then you pour it on your tea bag, when you add milk, you double the carbon footprint of that cup of tea. 
from a splash of milk and a cup of tea. So one of the most obvious things that a family can do or anyone can do is to think about their meat and dairy consumption. Uh, One of the proposals we have for Leeds is to decrease consumption of meat and dairy in Leeds by a third by 2030. Now, actually, when you look at trends in consumption anyway, people are consuming less meat and dairy and vegetarianism has has boomed in the last few years. That's still quite a a drop. I suppose our, our focus is on quality rather than quantity. You know, is it better to eat less meat, but to eat better meat, to eat local meat? you know, twice a week rather than, you know, poor quality meat ship from wherever, you know, um, four or five times a week. And yeah, it's those kind of behavioral changes. And and that one in particular would be a a big one. Reducing food waste is another. Food waste is a big, has a big carbon impact. So, you know, not buying everything and then putting it in the bin. And we, as a country, we waste a huge proportion of our food and, you know, we needn't do that. But then, yeah, looking at the energy efficiency of your home, I mean, we in my house in South Harrogate, we, we more than halved our carbon footprint or the energy use in the home. And this has paid for itself pretty quickly for five what? years by replacing the windows, by insulating the loft, by draft proofing, by replacing the boiler with a more energy efficient alternative. We have solar PV on the roof. Uh, so there are months in the year which we don't consume any electricity. Uh, we export back to the grid instead. So all of those things are, are, are positive. You save a load of money too. I mean, think about your car, but then, you know, um, there's a thing in, in that we call the rebound effect where, you know, people think, oh, I did my recycling this week, therefore I can go on a long haul holiday to Mauritius, you know, see it before it sinks. You have to think about those kind of broader things as well. But as an environmentalist, it has to be a positive vision of the future. It can't be about, you know, misery and sacrifice. It needs to be one that someone actively buys into and and we live in a democracy and people can make their own choices but collectively we need to do all of those things I think to to respond to this kind of threat. Thank you. Now Andy the roads in Harrogate are famously dreadful when it comes to traffic. Skipton Road in particular is a car park most of the time as is Weatherby Road and at the time that we're recording this in early April uh, 2019 we've had lots of road works recently where the roads just just do not function um, even if people in Harrogate are climate skeptics I think there's this growing understanding that the amount of, sort of diesel and petrol fumes that are being chugged out there often outside schools Bilton Grange Willow Tree and other schools is causing real serious damage to children's health and everybody's health the statistics are out recently, was it like 50,000 people in the UK die each year or whatever it was, down to inhaling exhaust pipes, more or less, exhaust fumes. Um, do you have any thoughts about our roads usage here? Should essentially the cars in Harrogate be forced to be all electric? Um, or do you have any particular thoughts on roads and electrification of cars and so on? Big question. It is a big question. I think I'm surprised by Harrogate. We have the Stray, and yet in many areas of the Stray, there are big no cycling signs. And I know that there are issues with inconsiderate cyclists and you know pedestrians and, and so on you know, interacting and it not being a good experience. But I think the council could be way more innovative in the way that they think about cycle lanes and cycle lane provision across the town. It seems to me it's it's pretty bad. It's a small town. We don't need to travel long distances across it. And if the cycling infrastructure was better, it could do a lot to reduce that traffic flow. And actually for a city or a town that prides itself on its connections to cycling with all the big cycling events coming up in the autumn, 
you know, why aren't we a world leader when it comes to providing cycling infrastructure for the people that live here? It's not only about racing. You know, we're resurfacing roads, to, you know, to make the road surfaces smoother for the, for the races in September. Can't we do more to facilitate cycling as a town, you know, for the residents who live here all the time? It seems to me a, a massive gap and a bit of a blind spot for the council, perhaps. I mean, otherwise, yeah, I, I wouldn't say we have to force people to do anything, but we can enable them to do things. Um, you know, Leeds has a new congestion zone kicking in just for commercial vehicles, taxis and lorries and vans and so on. You know, because Leeds has such a massive air quality problem and some of us from Harrogate drive into Leeds and, and contribute to that problem on a daily basis. So those, those air pollution things are very real. The council could enable more provision of e- electric vehicle charging points, of course, but you know, I think that cycling would trump that and active transport, as we call it, walking and cycling ought to be promoted and, and probably much cheaper to promote than you know, big infrastructure solutions that would be more expensive. We always notice in our family that when it rains, the roads in Harrogate get particularly difficult to drive through because everyone gets into their car. And when it's not raining, people will more likely walk. It's such a um, sorry state of affairs, but I suppose understandable. Yeah. Now, Andy, we're recording in April 2019, when you know, the UK should have left the European Union. Will it leave the European Union? I'm not going to ask you for your thoughts on whether you remain a Royal Brexiteer. But I ask you, if, if we do leave um, the European Union, um, how will this impact upon climate change or policy for Harrogate and I suppose more Leeds, I guess, which is uh, the, the big thing around here? Is it too early to say? It's slightly too early to say, and it depends on what kind of Brexit we get. Because, you know, environmental policy is one of the things that could be under, undermined or eroded if the UK came out of the EU. The EU is, has been the big driver in environmental policy for, for 30 or 40 years. And if we had a kind of bonfire of the regulations, then environmental policies could be amongst those that are most kind of vulnerable. There are some opportunities, I have to say. You know, there are some areas where Britain would be free to develop more innovative policies perhaps than the EU, and water might be one of those. But I think the risks are more on the downside of deregulation and of, of cuts in environmental standards alongside other things, I don't know, like food standards are often mentioned. Internationally, the EU has been a real global leader when it comes to climate negotiations. And, you know, I was in Paris for the UN climate talks and, and tend to participate in those on a fairly regular basis. And the EU really has blazed a trail in, in those areas. And the UK has been something of a leader too, but I think it wouldn't be so secure in that position if it came out of the EU without a strong commitment to maintaining environmental standards. Now, ironically, uh, Michael Gove has been quite a good environment secretary. My, you know, Personally, I wonder whether he's been kind of um, rehabilitating himself after his role in Brexit and showing that Brexit isn't necessarily all about deregulation and lower standards and you know, all the importation of chlorine processed chicken from the US and all the other things that we hear about regularly. Uh, but I think there there are other people on the Brexit campaign who are very very much about deregulation, de- deregulating and liberalising, and and that could be massively dangerous for environmental standards here. Andy, locally, as most people in this area will know, we have an incinerator just off the A1. Now, I don't think you're an absolute expert in that particular incinerator, but um, I can tell you that all the waste in our offices here, all of it, goes to that incinerator. 
we don't have the option to recycle as far as I know. It all goes there and is sort of sifted as far as I understand and it would be sent to brochure. Could you talk to my listeners about incinerators generally and whether they're good things, bad things? Because I know you have experience of the one in Leeds. Yeah, I've, um, I've been on visits to quite a number of incinerators actually. Oh, I forgive and me, I probably I know more than I needed to about some aspects of them. I mean, in, yeah, there were horror stories with incinerators up until the 80s or 90s. There was a, a famous one right in the middle of Sheffield. There were big campaigns about it because actually its chimney was right next to the hospital and there was a cancer ward. Oh dear. And you had, you know, it, it emitting carcinogens from the chimney over the top of the cancer ward of the hospital. You couldn't make it up. Yeah. And actually the technology was such that they just basically opened the door and shoved the stuff in. And, and the way incinerators work is if the, if the temperature drops, then you get a sudden slug of pollution coming out of the chimney. So modern incinerators are much, much better than that. And the new one on the A1 is, is one of those. You know, so they, they never let the temperature drop, drop below whatever it is, eight or 900 degrees. Uh, and that means, in theory, that, that you, know, you should never have any of the especially nasty dioxins, uh, which are, are proven carcinogens, coming out of the incinerators. Uh, and then there are all sorts of new pollution control technologies too. So I think they're much, much cleaner than they used to be, and they generate electricity. And across Europe, in Denmark and, and places, uh, waste-to-energy incineration is, is the norm. So modern incinerators run well and not burning chemical waste, for example, you know, shouldn't be that polluting. But they still do emit some pollution, absolutely. And some people who live just downstream from them naturally would be worried. I completely, completely get that. The one in the middle of Leeds has the extra benefit of being quite close to quite a dense population. So Leeds City Council has been working very hard on district heating and using the waste heat from this incinerator to heat homes. I think at full capacity it would heat 40,000 homes, including many of the tower blocks, which obviously post-Grenfell have risks with gas heating or you know, storage heating and that kind of thing. So that, you know, they can be very good if they're run well and if they're located properly. I would look at the one on the A1 and think, it's a shame there isn't a town near to it because then you could use the waste heat. But maybe there are other ways of doing that, like you know, fish farms or flower growing, or you know, there, you can use the waste heat for all sorts of things, industrial as well as um, residential, and, and make the most of the fact that it's there. But personally, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But I know people do, and you know, I understand why they're concerned. Thank you. Now, as I introduced you, you are perhaps better known internationally than you are nationally, and certainly than you are locally, which is the wrong way round normally. Are there any towns, particularly towns really, of a comparable size to Harrogate internationally that the people of Harrogate can look to and go, yeah, you know what, they're doing the right things. Now, this is what, who we should copy. We should benchmark with or town twin with or something like that. Yeah, of course there are leaders and you think of, I don't know, Freiburg in Germany is, is often held up as a, as a real leader in car-free transport, for example. Uh, or lots of the Scandic towns, you know, have have very progressive policies. You know, been working in Norway quite a lot, looking at wooden towns, uh, which interests me very much. Um, they have a history of that in parts of Norway. It's their local resource. You know, concrete consum- concrete construction is is massively carbon intensive. Uh, you know, new wood buildings can be very attractive and and you know much more economic and and much more healthy and so on and so on. So. Yeah, there are those kind of examples that you could draw from lots of places. 
locally, actually, one of the things that's emerging now is a new alliance between uh, Otley, Ilkley, Menston, Geisley, Harrogate, and a few other towns to develop a kind of sustainable towns initiative around here. You know, the, 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 the capacity to do everything in, in a small town is limited. But if you had a network of towns that was doing this together, uh, then, you know, there are possibilities to, to do all sorts of new things. Uh, Otley, for example, has a new community energy group uh, company emerging, which would be a kind of not-for-profit community company, as far as I understand it, which would f- look at new ways of funding, uh, household upgrades, investments in renewables, uh, investments in other things too. And, and yeah, those things are really exciting, and Harrogate should be part of a local network, I think, to, to learn and, and you know, participate in those broader processes. Everywhere you look in Harrogate at the moment, there are thousands of houses, new houses being built. And when you see those houses, are you thinking, well, great, new houses, these are going to be energy efficient, good for the way Harrogate deals with climate change? Or more generally, are the houses being built to such a construction, you think, what a wasted opportunity? Or do you just simply not know? Oh, you've touched on a raw nerve here. I used to live in a Persman home that we used to joke was made out of papier-mâché. It was actually very energy efficient in the winter, but in the summer we, we used to cook. You know, it was, it was too hot. When you look at new builds more generally, they're a lot more energy efficient than Victorian houses, as you would hope. But there is still so much more they could be doing. And the National Committee on Climate Change issued a fairly damning report about, about new house builders and the big house building companies not so long ago. And, and I contrast them to a company uh, in Leeds called Situ, C-I-T-U, and they're building a low carbon or nearly zero carbon uh, development right in the middle of Leeds. 700 houses, really funky master plan for the area. They build the houses in the middle of the city. They're employing 120 people. They're wood framed and they're basically passive house, which means they, they don't need any heating. They run from the heat from computers and fridges and the people in them. You know, and that excites me. And I suppose I look at many of the, the developments and think, well, why can't we be doing that here? It's a company that's 10 miles away. You know, there's a huge wood-based house building company or factory emerged just to the east of Leeds, Legal and General. You know, there's so much more we could be doing, but we need to be a bit braver and a bit more imaginative to, to do that here rather than just throwing up the same old stuff which locks us into a kind of mildly decarbonized future when we need a deeply decarbonized future. And I don't see that happening here too, too often, to be honest. And there are lots of people who live in Harrogate, work elsewhere, Leeds, sure, London, part of, and lots of other places, Bradford, Ripon, and so on. And the way the world is going is a lot more jobs are sort of computer-based and therefore can be home-based. Generally speaking, should businesses, there's a lot of business owners who I've interviewed on the podcast, should they be sending their staff home so that they work from home, not having to commute to work? Or is it actually normally better to have everybody in an office like perhaps we have as law firms do? It, it depends is the answer, I guess. So that's a bland answer. But if people have to heat an energy inefficient home to work at home when there's also an office at work being heated, then I think the impact of that is probably greater for most of us than the impact of a commute. But, you know, in the summertime when you're not having to heat a home or if your employer has a hot desking uh, facility and they shrink the size of the office, assuming that 20% of the time people will be working at home, 
uh, and if you have an energy efficient home you know so you don't need to heat it too much it's probably beneficial but then I guess it depends on the sector to sector doesn't it about you know the benefits of FaceTime uh, compared to Skype you know calls and all the other conference calls that we're mostly involved in yeah it's not it's not a clear-cut issue either way so how does a business do a sort of carbon assessment as to what it should do to reduce its carbon footprint do they have to ask each member of staff you know how do you get to work is it bus and what type of bus is it is it train what type of train is it is it plane you know how does it how can a business do any analysis like that and if it was would it be too time consuming is it too costly is it too pointless could you help the small businesses in Harrogate to answer that question because I bet they're all thinking what on earth can we do really yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of, obviously, companies out there who will do that for you for a fee. Uh, I've never heard of one, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, there are loads. Um, yeah, some of, the, I mean, some of them are better than others. We do that kind of thing for different companies, but it can be quite tricky. There, there are energy audits available, uh, and there are kind of options uh, assessed and, and prioritized and ranked for, for different companies. But yeah, we do that kind of stuff on a, on a regular basis. It can be a bit technical, it can be a bit dry. You need to kind of breathe life into it and bring it to life. Yeah, we can do that in terms of the, the energy bill savings and so on. And we, we're running a big program at the moment on, we, on project development. One of the things we hear is that businesses want to do things on energy, but you know, they have no shortage of ideas. What they have a shortage of is finance. And then when you speak to financiers, they say, we have no shortage of finance. We, what we have a shortage of is projects coming through which are ready for us to invest in. And so what we're trying to do in Leeds is to kind of bridge that divide, help companies to develop projects, prepare a business case for investment, and then secure the finance to deliver that stuff. Uh, we need to do that at scale. And in Leeds, I mean, uh, the investment needs are roughly $2 billion for the city to exploit all the profitable energy efficiency things across the whole city. So, yeah, looking into financing is a, is a big aspect of that. One of the most exciting things that's happening in Leeds at the moment is the talk of well, it's going to be launched next month, a green bond. So apparently Leeds as a city used to be a real leader in, in municipal bonds as a way of funding infrastructure and, and schools and development. And there's still a memory of that in the council, which is meaning they're quite open to exploring this kind of stuff now. But the broad offer that's being discussed in Leeds is that Leeds would issue a bond for one and a half million that anyone could buy in theory and you would get more than you get from keeping your money in, in a building society, be pretty much risk-free. And they would use that money to put solar panels on leisure centre roofs. And then the solar panels would generate electricity, which is used by the leisure centres. So the council would save quite a lot of money on its energy bill. It would create jobs, cleaner air, and help to decarbonise. And it's only a million and a half, which is a lot, but not that much in the bigger scheme of things. But, but the point is, if you can prove that model that local people can invest in their own area to generate jobs, you know, generate clean development and generate prosperity that then stays in the area. Wouldn't that be exciting that we all invested in our towns again rather than investing in, you know, Southeast Asia or wherever? Not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but that kind of reconnection of people and finance to the place they live and investing in the future of their town, I think that could regenerate you know, a whole new wave of citizenship and civic pride, rather like the Victorians. And look at many of our town halls, they're built by proud Victorian industrialists. It'd be great to think that we could do the same on a low-carbon future um, again in the next few years. Recording this podcast here in 14 Victoria Avenue, near the Everyman, 
we're also opposite the library. The library, I think, was paid for by Richard Carnegie. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, good example there. It sounds like Harrogate needs what Leeds is doing. Now, you mentioned sort of bonds, but actually a question about shares. I didn't foresee this question coming up, and you can dodge it, Andy, if you wish. If the direction of travel is, as you say it is, and it's the market now is going to start pushing us to be more carbon friendly, I think is kind of what you're saying. Which sort of companies should we, if we have money to invest, be buying shares in? Is it the likes of BP and Exxon and all that that are, you know, got multi-billion pound companies that can suddenly <coughs> switch into solar and so on? Or is it rather any lots of little startups that we ought to be investing in? Any sort of guidance would be great. I appreciate you're not a financial advisor, but <laughs> direction, where, where should we place our money? I think that the divestment campaign, meaning divest in investment in fossil fuels, has been running for a long time. And some people see the logic financially as well as morally or environmentally. Uh, and some people don't and you know, have direct experience of both of those things. I would say look at what's happening to energy prices and the example I gave earlier of nuclear power being £95 per megawatt hour and offshore wind being 55 and probably down to more like 45 now. If I was heavily invested in carbon-based companies that are not showing signs of making a rapid transition into low-carbon stuff, I would be very worried about being left behind in those, in those investments. That, you know, the, the market could drive an avalanche and a, a fairly rapid kind of switch from investment in oil majors into investment in renewable majors. And you'd want to be on the right side of that as an investor. In terms of new startups, there are some really exciting things coming through. Um, you know, for example, uh, film-based solar PV or integrated solar panels, basically, that you can put in a normal window and people wouldn't even know they were there. You know, if it's that, Elon Musk invention, is it? It's not actually, but it's yeah. Batteries would be another example, or electric vehicles. I think are probably going to take over because they're they're just more fun. E- even if you don't care about the climate end of things, they're quieter and the acceleration is more exciting, and all of those kind of things. Are, you know, Jeremy Clarkson, I think, wouldn't take too much persuading to invest in an electric vehicle if the range was up. And you know, the technology is advancing so quickly that I think, you know, there will be a flip without any government intervention into EVs. Uh, maybe governments have to intervene to provide the charging infrastructure. But, you know, th- those are just examples. And, and trying to spot the emerging technologies, hydrogen is another one that could be a massive change in natural gas to hydrogen in the next few years, for example. And, the, you know, the graphene economy, graphene discovered in Manchester, has enormous potential, for example, in, in desalinization. Now, imagine what you could get you know the transformations in the world if you had zero carbon desalination fueled by renewables and then you know desalinating water what could you do in desert areas with that i mean i think there are big risks attached to that still but there are huge opportunities in in high risk areas if you're looking for kind of venture capital investments and those kind of things andy thank you for all those answers now how do people get in touch with you? Are you wanting people to get in touch with you? Because imagine your emails are just coming in at you know, 10 a minute sort of thing. Yeah, of course. I'm really happy to chat. You know, I can't guarantee to get back to everyone immediately, but I travel a lot with work and um, and so on. But uh, yeah, either via Twitter, Twitter, which is just Andy underscore Gouldson, G-O-U-L-D-S-O-N, uh, or you can email me at the university. Um, you can just Google me and find me at the university website. 
Thank you, Andy. Now, at the end of a podcast, I just normally sort of shake hands with the person and wish them well, but I'm going to do my best, if I can, to sort of summarise a little bit what, what you're saying. The way, I, way I've listened to what you've said, I'm on one side sort of elated that the, the world is uh, decarbonising pretty quickly and there are some incredible technologies which uh, have come on tap very quickly. I'm going to interrupt you there. Some bits are decarbonising oh, very quickly. Well, globally, no, well thank, you for, yeah. thank you for the correction. I mean, okay. also, we, like my family, we and I test drove a Leaf car the other day, which is absolutely super, which is an electric car. And I do think that it seems to be that the direction of travel is going that way, but thank you for the correction that it isn't all going so well. But what upsets me listening to you speak, there's a lot of things that upset me, but in particular, locally, is that your focus here being Leeds, 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 you said it enough times, not just because you're the professor at Leeds University and the chair of Leeds Climate Commission, and you will, of course, mention Leeds, but it seems that just 18 miles away, where a lot of the people in Harrogate work or previously worked, and I've got friends there, Leeds are doing something that absolutely we're not doing here. And I think there's a lot of uh, forward-thinking uh, people here in Harrogate, and it, I'm quite embarrassed to live here knowing that Leeds is you know, stealing a march on us. It almost seems like they're 50 years ahead of anything that we're doing here. I think you're being probably too polite to say it, but I'll say it. I feel quite ashamed, actually. Um, that's the first time sort of recording a podcast I felt, God, what on earth are we doing here? So I'm delighted that you came in to be interviewed. Thank you for a lot of time of yours. And I, I encourage everybody to sort of maybe put some pressure on their councillors, MPs, and uh, not just the Harrogate Council, but Yorkshire, uh, so North Yorkshire Council as well, to um, follow the, the lead of Leeds. So Andy, thank you for your time and I wish you well with all your work. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.